0: Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com
1: The art of war is of vital importance to the state. It is a matter of life and death, a road either to safety or to ruin. Hence, it is a subject of inquiry, which can on no account be neglected. Sun Tzu, The Art of War War was always here, before man was, war waited for him, the ultimate trade awaiting its ultimate practitioner. Cormac McCarthy, Blood Meridian War is like a monster, he says, almost to himself. War is the devil. It starts and it consumes and it grows and it grows. He's looking at me now. And otherwise normal men become monsters too. Patrick Ness. The knife of never letting go. They say that war is death's best friend, but I must offer you a different point of view on that one. To me, war is like the new boss who expects the impossible. He stands over your shoulder, repeating one thing incessantly. Get it done. Get it done. So you work harder. You get the job done the boss, however, does not thank you. He asks for more. Mark Zusak, The Book Thief. As long as justice and injustice have not terminated their ever-renewing fight for ascendancy in the affairs of mankind, human beings must be willing, when need is, to do battle for the one against the other. John Stuart Mill. The Butcher's Bill of the Thirty Years' War is difficult to ascertain. Whatever the actual cost in human life, the scars it left behind are reason enough to suppose that the early modern world had never seen anything like it. What the early modern world did not know in 1648, of course, was that wars like the Thirty Years' War would occur again, and that, far from being a once-off event, the ruinous chaos that the Thirty Years' War degenerated into would be replicated throughout the remainder of the century. Those that had been born in the Holy Roman Empire in France or in Spain during the early 1620s or 30s must have felt as though their lives revolved around warfare, especially if one happened to live close to the front lines. The process of supplying the soldiery, of paying mercenaries, and keeping armies sweet took a horrendous toll on the countryside and the populations of Central Europe as a whole. The acts of plunder, rape and pillage that characterised the more severe end of the scale were upheld as uniquely despicable acts, and the vulnerable segments of Europe's populations surely hoped that such traumas were over for good, and that the treaties of Westphalia really did signify, if not the end of warfare, then at least the end of that form of warfare that they had just experienced. However, Europe's peoples would be disappointed. War did not cease to exist after 1648. The reasons for war changed in minor ways in the makeup of some states that had once participated in the wars had been altered, but war remained a tool of state for many after 1648. In fact, in some respects, the very fact that the Thirty Years' War had been so horrendous led some statesmen to examine exactly why it had been. Could the fact that people feared a return to the horrors of the Thirty Years' War be used against them, and if so how? Could war still be made feed itself? Could soldiers still live off the land? Could war still have a place in foreign policy? Was war still effective as a means of usurping the old order? Having studied the course of history after 1648, it seems clear and also somewhat daunting to note that the majority of European statesmen looked to the past rather than to the present when they considered how they could best achieve their goals. And in many respects, how could they not? If the Thirty Years' War had forged what the Westphalian treaties had made official, how could war not re-emerge? Conflict remained an ever-present bedfellow of European society even after 1648. France was still at war with Spain, the English Civil War remained in play, France was struggling to defeat its dangerous series of revolts against the crown known as the Fronde, Sweden possessed an empire forged in the fires of war and force with nothing unifying it except those factors of its foreign policy, while the Ottoman Empire seemed poised to launch a resurgent strike against Vienna, which the Holy Roman Emperor certainly believed to be on the horizon. Conflict, war, and the struggles seen during the Thirty Years War thus did not end with the Treaties of Westphalia. It seems thus had a historical to heap so much influence onto the agreements made in sixteen forty eight then, doesn't it? Perhaps the most fundamental reason sixteen forty eight is so significant Is because peace had finally come to the Holy Roman Empire, and one can mark the date of 1648 as the moment when modern Germany begins to emerge from the centralizing efforts from the religious wars of its emperors and embark on a new process of defining its expanding princely German states. It is also the definitive cut-off point for the war between the Dutch and Spanish that had dragged on for 80 years. From this point on, the Dutch would be loath to re-enter a war against their old Spanish enemy, and would seem more content to strategically ally itself with the declining Spain against new enemies. Thus, the emergence of the Dutch and the increased decentralization and growing individualism of the German states within the Holy Roman Empire can be upheld as highly significant events in their own right. Ideologically, though, Europe had not undergone as monumental a transformation as some histories might portray. This fact will be clear over the coming years. Monarchs will still wage war for the pettiest and most opportunistic of reasons, often not because they've forgotten the lessons of the Thirty Years' War, but because they remembered the effects that plunder, invasion, fear, and psychological trauma had on their enemies' populations all too well. <laughs> Of all the states, to emerge from the Thirty Years' War, perhaps none seemed as destined for greatness as the Dutch Republic. Having victoriously triumphed over its Spanish overlord during the course of a war that began in 1568, the Dutch had good reason to be positive. Eighty years of conflict had shaped the Dutch Republic dramatically, and the seven United Provinces could now focus in peacetime on issues other than defence and war trade and money making became the Dutch mission with a renewed zeal. The Amsterdam entrepot that had served as the world warehouse for the merchants of the world granted the Dutch the position of indispensable trade partners with all of Europe's powers. The Caribbean, the East Indies, India, Africa's coasts and inland, the New World along the East Coast, The Silk Road, China, and even the untapped island prison of Japan were entering, or had entered, the Dutch economic orbit. The Dutch possessed the monopoly on everything from the Baltic timber trade to the production of pepper in Indonesia, and if they didn't make it or get it themselves, they knew someone that could get it for them, and Amsterdam was the place to make the exchange. The Dutch controlled the Baltic trade routes and their investments in Swedish copper mining and Prussian grain production necessitated elevated Dutch interest in the Baltic sphere, facts which were to have notable foreign policy consequences in the future. Europe was somewhat stunned by the resplendent suddenness of the Dutch position. The Hague had overtaken England, swallowed by turmoil, as the most important maritime power, and its trade fleets surpassed those of France, Spain, Portugal and England combined. The sheer weight of Dutch commerce and the staying power that it suggested seemed to denote a never-ending golden age, a status that Europeans certainly accrued to the Dutch at this time. If the Dutch were able to maintain what they had seized and protected during wartime, imagine what could result from a Dutch Republic solely focused on trade, with no enemies to speak of, and no power that could rival its position. European statesmen were right to point to the Dutch as a key power of their time but they surely had little idea just how incredibly significant the Dutch imprint on the 17th century would be, with results that carry on to the present day. The future was less certain for the former Dutch overlord and once sole worldwide power. The Spanish Empire's position dipped notably and suddenly following the peace of Westphalia and the considerable loss of influence it suffered thereafter, but the truth was more complex. Spain had degenerated since the beginning of the 17th century. Internal problems of corruption and badly needed local and regional reform were combined with the fact that the Iberian kingdoms that constituted Spain were far from totally content. Catalonia was a trouble spot, Portugal had since split Messily from the Spanish Union that once dominated it, and Spain's Italian possessions seemed to be up for grabs to an eager French imperial presence. Having warred against the Dutch for nearly a century, warfare had taught the Spanish much. They still had among the best naval military capabilities in the world, as England would discover to its surprise in the late 1650s, yet as a land power, the days of Spanish infantry combining with its German imperial cousins seemed long gone. Spain was trapped in a war with France, a war both could ill afford considering the fact that France, just like Spain, badly needed time to reform and take stock following the end of its war with the Holy Roman Empire. Just like the French case though, the Spanish King Philip IV remained locked in a ruinous war that only furthered the domestic woes of his state while serving in the end to almost sever Spain from its once certain great power status. Spain remained supreme in the New World, its American holdings in modern-day Latin America remained the jewel in the Habsburg Spanish crown, but its European prospects seemed in jeopardy as long as France loomed so large. Despite its numerous niggling problems, Spain would remain a staple aspect of European relations, while its crown would spark off the 18th century's wars. The Holy Roman Empire remained in place after 1648, but it was nothing like the conglomeration of states that Ferdinand II had strived to unify under his rule in the 1620s and 30s. Since his death in 1637, Ferdinand II's son, Ferdinand III, had ruled over the Holy Throne. He remained a critical figurehead in German, as well as European relations, but times certainly were changing. Germany as we know it was certainly far from being realised. But the lesser states that would eventually constitute it, were at this stage undergoing their own experiments in representing themselves independently on the world stage. Some of course would do this better than others. Brandenburg Prussia, Saxony, Bavaria, the Palatinate, and Habsburg hereditary lands remained the solid fixtures of central Europe and the conduit through which everything German passed through, and the following years would bear witness to a growth in the attempts to distance one's state from the influence of the Emperor with some like Brandenburg soon to side against the Emperor altogether. The Habsburgs remained a stable fixture of Europe despite the suggested decline in their influence. Vienna was the Christian capital of the Eastern Marches, while it remained watchful of any signs that the once fearsome Ottoman Empire would rise to attack it again. Certainly in 1648, though, it was the newest imperial power in Europe that played on Ferdinand III's mind the most. The Swedish Empire. In the space of a decade, Sweden had redefined the balance of power in Europe, and crafted for itself an empire out of the domains of its enemies. It held territory in North Germany, in the Baltic states, and could claim to rule much of the Baltic Sea. The Baltic was not quite a Swedish lake at this stage, though Swedish efforts to make it so would come in time. For the moment, Sweden had its military reputation to protect its holdings, as well as the actual military force it could muster, which was considerable. Yet Sweden faced a number of challenges if it wanted to ensure that its empire remained intact. Domestically, thanks to short-sighted ventures aimed at raising cash fast, the Swedish crown had sold off much of its lands to the growing nobility. This nobility, who were not taxed, now possessed the majority of Swedish land, and thus a large portion of Sweden's revenue had disappeared. This was bad enough, but the fact remained that Christina was part of the problem since her desire to fluff up her court, had swollen and continued to swell Sweden's noble families to the detriment of Swedish finances. The major drain on Swedish finances, of course, was the size of its army that it had to pay to glue all of its domains together. The end of the Thirty Years' War had not brought Sweden guaranteed security. The need for Swedish veterans of the Thirty Years' War remained, thanks to the ever-present threat from its enemies. Thanks to the Polish preoccupation with its rebelling Ukrainian Cossacks and the Russian preoccupation with the opportunities that this provided, Sweden's legions seemed set to march in the near future. The questions were when and whether, after seeing it accomplish so much already, Europe would tolerate more Swedish successes. Sweden was something of a black sheep in the post-Westphalian world. Its greatness could not have been predicted at the beginning of the Thirty Years' War and its meteoric rise disturbed the old order in the north, east, and centre of Europe. Only time would tell whether its apparently reluctant queen would stand the test of time. Though rumours abounded that the Swedish queen hosted some unsavoury, and even gasp, Catholic guests, she at least still possessed her dominion. Christina's close neighbour across the North Sea was not so lucky. Had she been able to peer across the sea, and witnessed the tribulations of the Wars of the Three Kingdoms that ripped apart the British Isles and by 1648 resulted in its monarch languishing in captivity, she would have counted herself very lucky indeed. With the parliamentary victory in the first phase of the English Civil War, perhaps peace could return to the British Isles, and a more amicable relationship between monarch and constitution be forged. There was little reason to suspect that any rash action would be forcibly taken, though Charles's soliciting of aid from Scotland had soured his reputation with his English subjects somewhat. Even as 1648 was drawing to a close though, extreme elements of English society were setting in. Soon the troubled isles would play host to their most incredible, radical act, regicide. The shaky parliamentary hold on power stands as barely a footnote in British history, in terms of its length alone. Yet in terms of the impact it had on Europe and the rest of the century, the effects of the Wars of the Three Kingdoms was monumental. The subsequent policy pursued by the New Republic ensured that England could not be considered the periphery of Europe any longer. After maintaining its silence during the Thirty Years War, it seemed as though, at the very least, Europe needed to pay heed to the lessons emanating from London. One day your subjects could glorify your name, the next they could have you executed. For one monarch in particular, the young boy king of France, this lesson seemed one that was all too real. France had arrived during the tenure of the Thirty Years War, and had it survived its disastrous initial attempts at pursuing a coherent military policy with its Swedish and Dutch allies to eventually force about a peace with its Habsburg neighbours, but not all of them. Spain remained the enemy to the south, while French forces sought to acquire as much Spanish holdings as possible and continue the sagging fight against its Iberian foe. It was a task made that much harder by the eruption of revolt in France, in a series of domestic disturbances that came to be hijacked by the upper echelons of French nobility, and were nicknamed the Fronde. For the regency of France that presided over the upbringing of Louis XIV, it was a terrifying time, and the social and domestic wounds left by these turbulent years of Louis's youth would shape him just as sure as they would shape the French relationship with its crown. After years of warfare, the front would be defeated, but at a cost of a weakened nobility and economy, and a strengthened monarchical control that would lead in time to absolutism. These were the founding days of Europe's longest reigning monarch, but as future episodes will demonstrate, Europe did not require Louis to blunder into its own series of wars, though they would soon know the name of France as inseparable from that of war under its ambitious new king. Europe had been left thoroughly scarred by its Thirty Years' War. Those few states that could claim to have been left relatively unscathed by its terrible woes would succumb themselves to their own troubles in the years ahead. French land had by no means been saved from the horrors of the Thirty Years' War, but worse was to come during the Fronde as armed bands commanded by the nobility rampaged across the state. England had mostly isolated itself from the affairs of the continent during the struggle but now it seems set to embark upon its own era of violence and change, beginning with the execution of one of Europe's oldest institutions, the English monarchy. Of course, it would be a historical to suggest that a peacetime Dutch, Sweden or a Holy Roman state feared for the future on the basis that war seemed certain. Nobody could have known that a Louis would rise, that a Prince of Orange would unite the crowns of the Netherlands and Britain, or that Poland and Denmark would be consumed by foreign war within less than a decade. What did seem in the air was the ever-present fact, the reality, that war remained a tool of foreign policy regardless of the consequences war had wrought upon Europe in the past. War did not simply occur when diplomacy failed, it occurred because for some it remained a pastime, or a strategy, a need, or a chance to prove oneself and the prestige of one's state. Nowhere, it seemed, had war lost its sheen, and the final 50 years of this turbulent 17th century were to prove anything but the tranquil ideal picture of peace that the crafters of the post-war order in Westphalia had desired. Europe had creaked and groaned under the weight of 30 years' worth of suffering. But war would remain on the tips of the tongues of Europe's rulers and in the fronts of the minds of its statesmen, so long as there was glories to be won, triumphs to be had, and enemies to vanquish." By the end of the century, when the whole terrible process began again with different actors and methods, one could be forgiven for wondering if Europe had learned anything.
0: Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com
1: Anything at all. The post-Westphalian age is upon us, and I'm so excited to present it to you. So please check your downloads for the first part of this era the First Anglo-Dutch War. Thanks very much, history friends, and I'll see you soon.
0: Even on a budget,